Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to another episode, the first post-election episode of The Ezra Klein Show. It is not the episode I thought we were going to be doing this week. I am one of many people who, looking at polls and looking at the data we seem to have in front of us, did not think Donald Trump was going to win the election, but he did win it. And so my guest this week is Ron Brownstein from The Atlantic, who has been doing a better job than anyone digging into the demographic data, digging into the polling data, and sort of constructing a model of the country in which you can see the different groups and the different parts and how they're going up and how they're going down and how the two coalitions come together. I think he has had both the clearest model for understanding what happened, and he's also had the clearest explanation of what happened. The thing I'll say about this talk, which I really enjoyed and I learned a lot from, is that there are two questions that are running through it. And I, I want to separate them because I, I think they're worth keeping separate. There's a question of why didn't Hillary Clinton win, right? Why didn't the 100,000 or so votes that would have needed to flip in Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin flip? And when you're asking that question, when you're asking a question about such a small margin as her loss margin, and, and remembering, of course, she's going to win the popular vote, you are asking a question that has a lot of different answers. A lot of different things could have gone another way. Then there's the question, and I think it's a much harder one, of why was Donald Trump ever close enough to win? Why were so many Americans willing to say this guy who even on election day, 60% of the country said was unqualified for the presidency. Why were so many Americans willing to put him even in competition? That's the one that, to be honest, on an emotional level and on an analytical level, I am struggling much more with. Ron and I talk about both his perspective. He's one of the political reporters I respect most since I got into journalism. So it is great hearing from him on this. I think you're going to find it pretty fascinating and hopefully enlightening. As always, a couple quick requests. Please share Share this show, put it on Facebook, put it on Twitter, send it to your friends. Please listen to my other podcast, The Weeds with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff. We talk a lot of policy there, and that is becoming much, much more important as Donald Trump and a unified Republican Congress begin to remake America's social safety net. And finally, continue to email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with your guest requests, with your feedback, with whatever. All that said, here is Ron Brownstein. Ron Brownstein, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. A lot to chew on, man. <laughs> in an intense week. Yeah. Wow. Just, just really the most incredible, you know, I've been covering politics. Uh, this is my ninth presidential campaign and 
this week, this night, I mean, I was on set on CNN, you know, I was on the set as Wolf Blitzer called it, sitting next to Van Jones and Corey Lewandowski. And it was just a remarkable moment. Actually, you know, as for me, I think the moment where the election ended was actually very dramatic, where I don't know if you were watching CNN, but people were watching Wisconsin, wondering which way Wisconsin could go. And there were no results coming in from Milwaukee. And the Clinton people were saying Milwaukee was going to save it. Milwaukee was going to solve it. And then John King, I guess, offline called or went on to the secretary of state and they had updated the numbers from Milwaukee and he kind of scratched them on the magic wall in finger and there weren't enough votes. And at that moment, Donald Trump was president and it was like, wow. So here's what I want to ask you about that. There is a lot of work to be done to explain what happened. And we're going to spend a lot of our talk on that. But there's also the question of why was it a surprise, right? Yeah. Why were all the polls showing something else? And as someone who is deeper into the polls and deeper into the demographic data than anyone else I know, what what is your explanation of that? Because uh, well, I, yeah, there is I have a, a huge miss here. There are a few answers. I mean, I think first, the national polls are not going to be as far off as the result, right? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. she may win the national vote, popular vote by north of a point and a half to two points. And, you know, that was three to four was pretty much the final weekend. So that's not a terrible, terrible result. But, you know, obviously it got the overall election wrong. First of all, there was not a lot of polling in Wisconsin and Michigan. Polling in Pennsylvania did miss it, though. Polling in Pennsylvania did miss it. But there wasn't a lot in Wisconsin and Michigan. And what there is, isn't really high quality. I mean, historically, Michigan polling has not been great. And there's you know, if you go back and you look at some of the sites that analyze this, they will show that some of the biggest divergence between the final polling and the results are often in Michigan. It does seem, you know, based on the exit poll that late deciders went to Trump. But, you know, I don't think there is a full explanation for the systematic failure to get the mag. I mean, two things happened. Uh, and we'll talk about this because I think it goes to the core of the explanation. He won non-college whites, especially women by slightly more than all of the late polling had it. And she did not do quite as well, even though she did you know, very well by historic standards, among the college whites, especially women, as the late polling had it. So could there have been a late movement to Trump? Sure, but was there some polling error also? I think that's pretty clear as well. Not only public, right? I mean, you know, the Clinton mm-hmm. campaign did not go to Wisconsin after the primary. They only went to Michigan twice after June until the last weekend when they kind of frantically went to Detroit and Ann Arbor. So it wasn't only the public polling that missed it. You know, it was the private polling. And, and from my understanding, the modeling as well, I mean, the, you know, which is supposed to be even better than the polling. Yeah, this was a big fail data-wise. But the other reason it it seems to me this was so surprising was that there had been this narrative, and it had been building for a very long time, which is that Democrats felt really certain that they had this ascendant coalition that was swimming with this rising demographic tide. And not only that they had the wind at their back, but that Trump was the perfect candidate to solidify Mm -hmm. it, the perfect candidate to solidify Hispanics and Asians and African-Americans and college-educated whites into the Democratic coalition and young voters. So what happened? What did Democrats get wrong when they looked at this and thought the structure of the election itself favored them? Right. As as the person who coined the phrase, the coalition of the ascendant back in 2008, I think I am asked this a lot. I think the short answer is that Democrats were counting on Trump to provide all of the energy on both sides. And it turned out that stopping Trump was not a sufficient motivation to get the level of margin and turnout that Hillary Clinton needed to offset what was a very real surge to him 
among the portions of the electorate that have been moving Republican to begin with. I mean, I, I, I look at this as something like, I don't want to you know, coin a $10 phrase, but I'm looking for a, maybe there's a better one, but essentially asymmetrical mobilization or asymmetrical consolidation, by which I mean that the portions of the electorate, particularly non-college, non-urban, older and evangelical whites, those big four that have been moving toward the Republican Party over the last 25 years. Trump did not create this, but it, it, it enormously accelerated. And as we'll talk about, he generated astronomical margins among many of those groups. Um, and you, did, you just simply did not see a counter mobilization on the Democratic side that was comparable. She did very well in metropolitan areas. She did significantly better than President Obama did among college-educated whites. She slagged slightly, but expectedly, among African-Americans. I mean, you're not going to get 95% all the time. So there were a lot of ways in which she performed acceptably, but the, her side of the line did not come together in the same magnitude, particularly in those three critical states that ended up deciding the election, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. I mean, I kind of think of this election as two armies running against each other on a muddy field like Braveheart or Battle of the Bastards. And one side wavered just a little bit, and the other side did not waver at all. And in that kind of strength against strength, the Democratic side fell just short in three places, plus Florida, I suppose, where it needed to, to match the intensity of the other side and could not. You know, in, in 1984, Ronald Reagan won 66% of non-college whites and won 59% of the total vote. In 2016, Donald Trump won 67% of non-college whites and will finish below 47% of the total vote. So it is not as if the demographic change isn't real or is not constricting the Republican coalition, but he squeezed every last bit of advantage of that out of that, targeted particularly in the weakest point in the Democratic defenses, the weakest point of the blue wall, which were these three Midwestern components of it, Rust Belt at least, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and was able to squeeze out a victory. The long-term challenge, though, of speaking to a shrinking share of the electorate Again, going from 59% of the vote to 47% of the vote with the same showing among non-college whites just shows you the, the, the demographic pressure still exists. But again, his side consolidated, you know, charged the line with everything it had. And the Democratic side just wavered a little bit because among millennials and Hispanics and African-Americans and even those college white women, there was not quite as much enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton as the polls suggested heading into Election Day. So something that I think this brings up pretty sharply is as Democrats think about the aftermath of this, there are two ways I think to interpret it. One is to focus on who did show up, which is particularly the white working class for Donald Trump. And another is to think about who didn't show up. As you say, that there are these lower margins among millennials, among African-Americans, among Hispanics, among working and college educated whites that she needed. And I think that the, the conversation is focused really as it did. It's very reminiscent to me of 2004, as it did then about whether or not Democrats can rebuild a connection and, and cut Republican margins against working class whites. But is that the right take on this or is the way Democrats should be thinking about trying to find candidates who do more to energize this coalition they have in the future? I think it's more the latter than the former, but you can't completely eliminate the former because I think in the long run, 
The new reality is that Democrats are going to face big deficits, as they have been, among non-college and non-urban whites. I, I just think that the cultural commitments that the party has accepted in the Obama era of supporting gay rights and transgender rights and pathway to citizenship and reconsidering the relationship between minority communities and the police and funding Planned Parenthood. And you can probably list five more that are escaping me on no sleep. But the, the set of cultural commitments that the Democrat Party has put a ceiling on what they can realistically expect among white working class voters, particularly those outside of cities. So that the party's future, I think, is moving toward this new coalition. I think that is unquestionably you know, where most of the emphasis has to be. Having said that, you know, you can't accept only winning 28 percent of non-college white voters or 34 percent of non-college white women. You know, the, the overall direction is toward mobilizing the new coalition. I think that has to be the emphasis of the party. And that in many ways, Arizona, North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, holding Colorado and Virginia, Nevada may be more realistic path for the party than consistently expecting to hold Michigan uh, and Wisconsin going forward, although we should talk more about that. But having said that, even in those other places, what we saw was that even in the Sunbelt places, that if you collapse to the point that Democrats did among non-college, non-urban white voters, it becomes very problematic. I mean, look at North Carolina. I mean, I think I think the, the final figures will be that she was 100,000 votes better than Obama in Wake and Mecklenburg, you know, and yet lost the state by much more than he did because everywhere else moved away from them. So, Principal focus, I think, in the long run has to be the new coalition, but you can't, the coalition of the ascendant or the blue wall, another phrase that I coined back in 2009, these are thumbs on the scale. They're not a get out of jail free card. I mean, it doesn't mean that you can let everything else go to hell and you'll still be fine. You have to be competitive to a greater extent than she was able to be among some of these coalitions that move toward Trump. One of the things I wonder is how much the the sense of having an ascending coalition actually set Democrats up for for a kind of a backlash here. When Obama ran both times, he ran very consciously race neutral campaigns. He he was able to have his connection with the African American community by virtue of who he was, but he did not run on the idea this was a rising coalition that was going to take power. And in in a very different way, I think Clinton, because she couldn't fall back on that kind of connection, did. And Donald Trump, because he emphasized immigration from the very beginning, emphasized not letting Muslims in from the very beginning, he really primed the electorate to be thinking about this racially. And so you had, in a way where Romney and Obama agreed to fight this out on economics, and it was really sort of workers versus capital. For Trump and Clinton, it was really the political power of aging white America versus the political power of this sort of younger right. multicultural America. Right. And I think all of the evidence we have is that when you make white voters think about that, they turn more conservative and they turn more afraid. And, and I do wonder how much that actually created a mobilization for Trump because it forced people to confront this idea they would be losing political power to a coalition that maybe they weren't going to be part of. Absolutely. I think that's, that's all absolutely right. I, I would throw in a couple of wrinkles on it. But yes, absolutely. Both sides were willing to fight this as a campaign over the definition of American identity in the 21st century. I thought the Democratic Convention, for example, was an unusually sustained argument, the most sustained, consistent argument that I've ever seen out of the 18 conventions I've been to about what does patriotism look like 
in a diversifying country. I mean, the speeches from Michelle Obama and President Obama mm -hmm. and Cory Booker and many of them were remarkably thematically consistent in the same way Captain that Trump. Con. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and, and in the same way that Trump represented the reverse in effort to kind of consolidate white America. Now, in the end, the Clinton strategy approach would have worked if she had held as much of college white collar white America as the polls gave her going in. And, you know, that that to me is we're going to fight about the Latino numbers and the exit polls forever the way we always do with people like Latino decisions saying they're way off. And it was really 80 percent voting against Trump, which would, of course, meant that she did even worse among white voters. But leaving that aside for a minute, where you saw the most conspicuous fall off for her were if you looked at the pre-election polling, she was on track to win college white women by 12 or 14 or 15. She was on track to hold down the loss among college white men to seven to 10, which is very good performance historically. Instead, she lost the college white men by 15. She only won the college white women by six. She didn't quite get the margin in Oakland County or the suburbs of Philadelphia that I thought she was headed for. And if she did, even with everything else that happened, even with the the lack of turnout in Detroit, for example, she would have survived. Now, you know, that's where the campaign points the figure at Comey the most, essentially giving college whites who are hesitant about Trump the permission to say, you know what, they're both horrible, let's go for change. But I think that's going to be an issue going forward for Democrats. You know, can you count on cultural affinity with college whites to give you the kind of margins you need if you're losing the blue collar whites by the levels that uh, this campaign showed? Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box.
The New York Times' Nate Cohn had a pretty good related tweet to this where he said, and this was on election night, that, quote, how to think about this election. White working class voters just decided to vote like a minority group. They're 40 percent of the electorate. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's the way to think about it, that they are in a election and a sort of a political system now that is breaking this into a much more sort of coalition versus coalition way of looking at political power that whites are beginning to see themselves as a minority group, particularly as we're headed for majority minority status, and they're going to vote like that? Yes, I think there is something to that. There's unquestionably something to that. You alluded to the, you know, the research that shows as you kind of impress upon whites the trajectory of them becoming a minority in the country, that you see more racial solidarity in voting. And I think that's real. But again, elections are decided at the margin. And it is worth noting that, you know, it's funny, I I tweeted the last, uh, in the last week, a piece I wrote in the last week of the 2012 campaign, in which I talked about how Obama had run two different advertising messaging campaigns. In the Sun Belt, he ran pretty much what we saw from Clinton, kind of a socially liberal campaign aimed heavily at college white women on issues like Planned Parenthood, and abortion and gun control. In the Rust Belt, though, he did run an economic populist campaign based on the idea of Mitt Romney as a rich guy who came to town and, you know, shut down the plant and ruined your your opportunity. There was the chance to do something like that on Donald Trump. In fact, some of the people in the Clinton orbit a year ago said to me that the single most important thing to do with Donald Trump was to disqualify him as a champion of the working class, to not allow him to occupy that space, to, to basically argue that he was someone who was really in it only for himself and his rich friends. And in the same way that he had stiffed all of these people who had done work for him, he was going to stiff the working class. They never really made an effort to do that. They never made an economic case against Donald Trump. It was all that he was personally unfit to be president. He didn't share your values. And that was a campaign that was fundamentally aimed at white collar whites. I mean, it wasn't clear that it ever meant nearly as much to blue collar white women, for example, all of these ads about like, what would our daughters see, right? I think for a lot of blue collar white women, what they hear from Donald Trump is what they hear a lot on the workplace. And they have kind of learned to kind of, you know, not necessarily to accept it, but to kind of brush it off in a kind of guys will be guys. I mean, look at the Alec McGillis reporting on this, which is terrific and kind of very verbatim quotes that kind of go in that direction. So they never really had a message. The core of their of their general election message was Donald Trump does not reflect the values of a changing America. And I think that there was very little in that that spoke to blue collar white voters who may have felt that the value of a changing America didn't really leave a lot of room for them, or if not, at least were not as offended by some of the things that Donald Trump said and did as their white collar counterparts. Here's my pushback on that. It is certainly also my instinct to begin questioning the Clinton campaign's messaging. But I have to think that they had tons of focus groups on these ads, tons of polling on these ads, tons of just data that that I didn't, and that they, for some reason, believed that the direction they were taking was working better. And maybe I could imagine, maybe it's because people didn't buy Hillary Clinton as a champion of the working class. Maybe it's for some other reason. I don't know. But whenever I do that, I sort of wonder... If that was true, wouldn't someone have noticed it, right? Yeah, they no, have a lot more ability well, to test than I do. But wouldn't you say the same thing about Michigan and Wisconsin, right? I mean, you know, I yep. wrote I wrote a piece, what, 10 days out saying she had spent $180 million on television in Florida, Ohio, and North Carolina, three states she did not need to win in order to win. And at that point, she'd spent $6 million on television in Michigan and Wisconsin. That's two incredible as a number. Yeah, two states she did need to win. And they kind of assumed that the collapse, the virus of Trump in the white working class that was creating so many problems in Ohio and Iowa 
for whatever reason, they assumed that it stopped at the state line and that the demographically identical voters in Michigan and Wisconsin would not be receptive to the same arguments. So like I said, everybody missed something. And I'm not, I'm just saying that like, if you think about going forward Mm -hmm. in the Democratic Party, it's not 50-50. I think the future is more mobilizing the new coalition than on recreating the old coalition. But, you know, politics is never all or nothing. I mean, they can't, you can't win 28% of non-college white voters and expect this to turn out well. And again, you know, you looked at the ability to hold those Midwestern states had depended on doing significantly better among non-college whites than they did in most other parts of the country. And they still did a little better, but you're talking about 35% in Wisconsin, right? And, you know, 37% in Ohio. I mean, really 31%, I believe, in Michigan. Really low numbers. And it's got to get a little better than that, at least until you think your coalition has grown to the point where you can win Arizona, North Carolina, and Florida reliably, which is not here yet, right? I mean, but you know, here's Here's a different take on on their problem, right? Which is to to go back to the point about ads, because we didn't mention Pennsylvania there, which yeah, got, I think, right. if I'm right, a enormous ton of advertising and it a ton was, of visits, right. and right. they also lost it. Right. And one of if I'm going back and I'm saying which of my priors have been just shredded by this election, I walked into this election as I think among journalists unusually skeptical of how much campaigns matter, right? Mm -hmm. How much Mm -hmm. the ads matter, how much the get out the vote matters, how much the candidate matters. I tend to be a little bit of a fundamental person. I look at the economy and so on. But I never dreamed that you could run as little of a campaign as Donald Trump did versus as much of a campaign in terms of paid advertising and in terms of GOTV as Clinton did. And not just have parity, but but actually win. And, And so is one of the conclusions you need to draw from this election that there is just much less effect to that stuff than we thought. Yes, I think so. I mean, I'm a structuralist too. I mean, I I tend to think campaigns don't matter as much as underlying conditions in the sense of a kind of the interplay between the candidates and the underlying conditions, how the candidates orient themselves toward the demographic and economic and social realities of the country. That kind of interplay is what I believe shapes the campaign and the tactical maneuvers are less important. But there's no question that I think in this election, the free media, the definition of the candidates on television and in their engagement just overwhelmed everything else, just totally overwhelmed everything else. And and certainly, you know, there are a lot of media consultants who are making a lot of money off of television that now looks to be, you know, not quite irrelevant, but just not hugely important. And you're right, by the way, Pennsylvania is why you can't say this was just tactics. They took their eye off the ball in Michigan and Wisconsin. They were overly confident, a little arrogant, as I said, that the virus in Ohio and Iowa would not extend across state lines. But in Pennsylvania, they fought and they tried, although even there, I found it very curious that on the last weekend of the campaign, they sent Stevie Wonder to to Philadelphia on Friday, Katy Perry to Philadelphia on Saturday, and then Bruce Springsteen and President Obama to Philadelphia on Monday, and that there was nowhere else in the state that they felt they could go with that kind of firepower that would be useful to them. I thought that was like kind of an ominous, like, you know, when I watch one of these horror movies and the leaves start rustling in the street, you know, it just felt a little like, wow, isn't there any place else that they feel like they can talk to people? And, you know, that is a big part of the story, right? I mean, you look at those, I'm sure you did, you look at those maps on election night in Wisconsin 
and in Michigan and in Pennsylvania and how few counties she won is, you know, striking. It's staggering. She's going to win significantly fewer, maybe 200 fewer counties than anyone who's ever won the popular vote ever. That's incredible. But but let me flip this now and, and let's talk about Trump for a little bit. Yeah. I would say that the implicit question of our conversation so far is why didn't Hillary Clinton get two or three percentage points more of the vote in a couple of states, right? Because she already won mm-hmm. the popular vote. We're, right. we're saying, why didn't right. she win? And if you're asking, why didn't she win in a race as close, you are talking about a lot of different things that could have gone differently from tactics to luck to turnout on the day, whatever. The question I am just to be flatly honest struggling with is how is Donald Trump ever close enough to even mm-hmm. win? Mm-hmm. To go back again to my priors, he did things over and over and over and over again in this election that given everything I thought I knew about American politics would have been disqualifying. I remember Mitt Romney getting shit for having a car elevator. Donald <laughs> Trump has a house made of gold. I remember yeah. Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. Donald Trump, who got deferments from Vietnam, attacked John McCain's war heroism, attacked the Khan family. I mean, he just on a day-to-day basis, the tweeting was just beyond what any I mean, I I just can't imagine what people would have done if Mitt Romney had sent the kind of tweets Trump did. And I do not know how to explain why so many of my countrymen looked at Trump and said, yeah, this guy has the temperament to be in the Oval Office. You know, and in fact, as you know, they didn't. I mean, 60 percent said he did not. And 60 (laughs) percent said he was not qualified. And maybe part of the answer is to to stay right there for a minute, because in the pre-election polling, you know, I had said that the North Star of this race was that 60% of the country said that he was not qualified and that that was always the, the North Star. That was the ceiling on his support. And that was why he was mm-hmm. unlikely to win. And I was as wrong as anybody else. In the pre-election polling, though, of that 60% who said he was not qualified, somewhere were like six, only like six or 8% said they were going to vote for him. In the exit poll, it was around 20% of the people who said he was not qualified or said that he lacked the temperament voted for him. And ultimately, I think, you know, it was the amalgam of, for a big portion of his coalition, the identity politics, that he was a champion of kind of restoring the centrality of kind of white influence in shaping the direction of the country, particularly the white working class. But then beyond that, because that was not a majority, I mean, that was not 47% of the electorate. That was more like what got him into the 40% range. I think beyond that, particularly in white collar, white America, And with college white men, and in the end, enough college white women, there were enough doubts about her, either about her honesty or her direction, that stability was risk. I mean, the idea of four years in the hands of Clinton seemed more unacceptable than rolling the dice with Trump. And that combination of they were willing to take the risk, clear-eyed about his shortcomings, And there was significant elements of what we're talking about, of identity politics here. There are two quotes that I think are competing to be the defining explanation of what happened. I mean, one is from Selena Zito, the opinion writer for the Pittsburgh paper, you know, who wrote, Donald Trump's voters take him seriously, but not literally. The press takes him literally, but not seriously. And that's kind of a very favorable interpretation of the kind of the Trump phenomenon that his voters wanted someone who was going to speak to their distress, their economic distress, their sense of marginalization. uh, And they didn't really believe all the horrible specific things he might have said about Muslims or uh, Mexicans. The other quote 
<clears throat> excuse me, the other quote was from Pete Weiner, who was the former you know, director of strategic planning in the George W. Bush White House, who said that not everyone who voted for Trump shares his racial nationalism, but everyone who voted for Trump accepted, was willing to accept his racial nationalism. You know, I think the second one is actually a better explanation than the first, but both of them have a piece of an answer to your question. I think the second one is interesting to to drill in on for a minute because there are two ways of looking at it, right? One is that the racial nationalism was not a disqualifier and the other was that it was actually an accelerator. I, I think we had a lot of trouble during this election, throughout the entire election, talking about finding a middle ground in how to talk about Trump on race and Trump's coalition on race. And so you'd either get people saying he's not a racist or he's a racist. And, th and there's something in between there. And Arlie Hochschild, who, who wrote this great book, is now for a National Book Award on uh, Republican voters in Louisiana. She talks about this story that a lot of the Republican voters she met had in, had in their heads, which is that they've been waiting in line a long time and yeah. things aren't yeah. working out well for them and right. they're not getting good jobs and they're seeing their, their communities decline. And now they see all these other groups cutting in line in front of them. And it's not so much that they hate the other groups, but that they feel themselves falling further and further and further back and, and a resentment does develop there. And, and it, you know, it's a, it's a view of the economy and it's a view of advancement as zero sum with other racial yep. groups. And I think right. that is, that was very core to Trump. Trump's view of the world and his view of the competition between groups and the competition between countries is fundamentally zero sum. Yep. And so I think something about that Weiner quote is that yeah, it may not have been disqualifying, but I think the bigger thing was that it was actually part of the argument for Trump in, in important quarters. It was. And I, we have to have a way of talking about the, that without saying everyone is racist, because I do think everyone constantly getting called racist was actually part of the thing that powered Trump, too. Yeah. No, look, I, I think like I think there's no question that if you look at the polling, the Trump coalition in all sorts of different ways expresses much more unease about the demographic and cultural changes going on in the U.S. They're much more likely than voters overall to say discrimination against whites is as big a problem as discrimination against minorities. They're more likely to say that the growing number of newcomers threatens traditional American values. They're more likely to say, much more likely to say, and perhaps the most famous poll question of this year, that life for people like me was better in 1950 years ago than it was, than it is today. They are also relevant to this, more likely than other voters to say much more likely that the opportunities for their kids won't be as good as the opportunities that they have had. They have a sense of being marginalized both culturally and economically. I mean, there's no question about that. And so, yes, for a portion of the Trump coalition, right from the beginning, right from the moment he came down the escalator, was the, the electric thrill of someone who would say publicly what they have never heard any leader validate. I mean, I, I was on a, a, you know, CNN on the morning show one day after a focus group they did of Trump voters. You know, I came on after and I said, there were people in that room who just said things on national television that they would not have said a year ago at the Thanksgiving dinner table. I mean, they would not have said out loud in front of their niece. Right. And now they were saying it in front of 2 million people. Or maybe I'm like uh, uh, overly optimistic about the uh, viewership, but um, the you know a lot of people, hundreds of thousands of people. So that's real, but that by itself was not enough to win. And I think you know the last piece here that got him over the top was her inability to push as far in among college whites where those sentiments, at least in polling, are much less likely to be expressed. She did not push as far in among college whites as they thought or all the polling had had it. 
you know, they both got a little worse, right? I mean, the, the non-college whites got worse. The college whites got a, a little worse than, say, the late October polling. How much of that was Jim Comey reopening? I, I certainly felt that the college white men were the ones most likely to be affected by that, the, the ones most likely to have a negative view on both. And this gave them kind of the ammunition to say, well, you know what? They're both horrible. I'm going to go with the one who's going to cut my taxes, you know, which is where a lot of those voters are. But for Trump, the identity politics was an accelerant for part of his coalition, and it did not turn out to be a disqualifier for as many voters outside of the coalition as people hoped. I, you, know, what, you know, people on the Clinton side hoped. So it was the worst of both worlds. Another way of looking at it, as, as we talked about before, is she got caught between the party's past and the party's future. I mean, she mm-hmm. fell into the space between. Do you think that the Comey news in the final couple of weeks mattered? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. I think you it think she wins without that. Deep down, I think yes, uh, but uh, I don't so think. That's it, ex- I want to know. That's an extraordinary, yeah, thing. Yeah, right? I mean, like I, I feel like almost none of us want to absorb what that means. I mean, it's it's hard to say. I mean, so many things mm-hmm. went wrong. I mean, it, it, the Comey letter was not the reason why turnout in Milwaukee and Detroit wasn't what it should be, uh, and it wasn't the reason why. Donald Trump got the same share of millennials as Romney did, but Clinton finished five points below Obama. I think the Comey letter very specifically gave more college whites the, as the, you know, the, the saying of the year, the permission structure to vote for Trump. And that probably would have been enough to tip Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan to her. It probably would not have got her Florida or North Carolina, where she already did that. So, you know, in a very narrow sense, could it have tipped those three states? Sure. But the problem was bigger than that. I mean, the problem was that they lost more ground on the Republican side of the ledger than they gained on the Democratic side of the ledger. They lost more non-urban, non-college than they gained among college and urban. And so in a technical sense, you could say Comey decided the election, but, you know, the problem was bigger than that. But to the extent that the problem was bigger, I mean, one way in which the problem was bigger, there was a Gallup poll a couple months ago that did a fascinating word cloud of what people had heard about Clinton. And just the biggest word in the word cloud was email. Yeah. And there yeah. was that Media Matter study that the three nightly newscasts had had given more time to Clinton email scandals than to all policy issues combined. And, and given the fact that yeah. none of these email scandals turned out to really be scandals... It is hard for me to get away from the idea that in some very fundamental way, the press failed here. And they failed not because what they reported was wrong per se, but that in the just overwhelming resources they gave this one story, they created an impression that even once it was disproven, couldn't actually be dislodged. And that there was a, a, a true failure here. Well, first, I mean, the press certainly highlighted many, many failings of Donald Trump, right? I mean, there's no question about that. It wasn't kind of as if That's Trump true. Trump got a free no, no, ride. No. That's you know, true. And, and, you know, as I said, you get to the election day and 60% say he's not qualified and 60% say he doesn't have the temperament. That's extraordinary. Only, I think only what, only 40, fewer people had a favorable view of Trump than voted for him in the exit poll, which is again, something pretty remarkable. Yes. Was there too much attention to the emails? Probably. But Clinton made the decision to begin with. And it was a decision that does, you know, reflect aspects of her mindset, kind of clenched fists, circling the wagons, not having a lot of dissenting voices immediately around her, 
I think there were aspects of the email story that would have been relevant to her as president. I mean, the, the inability of people from the record keeping and security divisions of the State Department to get anywhere near her with their objections. So I think it told voters something that they thought they needed to know about her. And whether the press overplayed it, I think it, it wasn't irrelevant information for people. Um, look, I mean, how many things had to happen for Donald Trump to be president, right? I mean, you, you kind of think about all of the things that had to come together to allow him to break through in those three states by, what, 12,000 in Michigan, 25,000 in Wisconsin, and I think about 65,000 in Pennsylvania, or 75,000. How many things had to happen there? I mean, part of it was the doubts about her that allowed more college whites who didn't think Trump should be president in the end to drift that way anyway. But it was also her failure, as I said, to consolidate elements of the Democratic coalition to match the kind of surge from the other side. And by surge, I don't mean a turnout surge, because it wasn't like huge numbers of people stormed the polls. But, you know, we saw all of these places consolidate much more around him than we had in the past. If you held Trump's vote constant, yeah. but Clinton had had Obama 2012 levels yeah. of turnout among these groups. Is this race close? You know, I haven't done the actual calculation, but I think she wins. I mean, yeah, I think Obama, Obama 2012 in the places that he did best beats Trump, even if Trump gets the movement that he did. Now, it doesn't Trump might still win North Carolina, Florida and Ohio. But I believe Obama like levels of turnout in Philadelphia and Milwaukee and Madison and Ann Arbor and Detroit win those states in all likelihood. Again, it begs the question, though, of can you rely on that? I mean, can you lose? If you look at those maps, there were many places that Clinton lost decisively in mid-sized cities like the Scrantons and Lackawannas of the world that Obama won narrowly, right? I mean, all of those places moved 8, 10, 12, 15 points away from her. And that's probably not survivable. You don't have to win them anymore if you can turn out your new coalition. But again, it's not a get out of jail free card. You need to remain somewhat competitive, which is not, I don't think, impossible. I mean, I don't, I don't think it is guaranteed that every Democrat is only going to get 28% of non-college white voters. I think they can do better than that, but they probably have to do a little better than that. So one question here about this sort of future coalition versus past, or I think to be fair to a present coalition, is how this maps on to uh, an example you and I, are, who are both from California, are familiar with, which is Prop 187. Mm -hmm. I often heard what the Republican Party is doing with Donald Trump this year compared to what Republicans did with Prop 187 in California. But I think what people forget about Prop 187 is that it passed. Yes, it did. And that Pete Wilson won. Right. And that the disaster for California's Republican Party came in the aftermath of that, not, right. not, not before right. it. And it may and be. I, yeah. yeah. It, it may be. I mean, the parallel may hold. I mean, if you look, Republicans have now won less than 40% of millennials in three consecutive elections. And millennials in 2020 will be the largest generation in the electorate. And in, the, for the, in 2020, for the first time, the post-millennials will be three or 4% of eligible voters. And they are even more diverse. I think just under 45% of the millennials are non-white. Uh, among the post-millennials, it's 49%. Uh, and the, the projections are by 2024, the millennials and post-millennials alone will be 45% of the vote. So if Donald Trump governs on the agenda he ran on and essentially defines the Republican Party as a party of white backlash, that is a long-term challenge, but it requires the other side to kind of step up onto the field. And I, as I said, if, if you think of this as kind of a uh, 
Braveheart or Battles of the Bat. This was not 21st century drone in a uh, joystick warfare. I mean, this was, these were armies rushing at each other on a muddy, bloody field is the way I feel. And on the Democratic side, on the kind of the coalition of the future America, the more tolerant, inclusive, diverse, cosmopolitan America, they wavered just a little bit. And the other side broke through the lines at the weakest point, which was those three Midwestern Rust Belt states where this coalition is the least prevalent compared to, say, a California or a New York or some of the other states along the coast. So, yes, there are demographic reinforcements out there that are ready to come onto the field on the Democratic side, but they got to come onto the field and Democrats have to bring them onto the field. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. This speaks to something that has actually changed in in my view of politics in this election. So one of the ways I often thought about the demographic one of the ways I actually thought about the demographic analysis you and others do is that while it made sense here and it made sense as a way of looking at the elections we've had, that at some point the Republican Party would pivot and it yeah, would nominate yeah. someone like Marco Rubio right. and begin to become a more open, tolerant and inclusive party. And something that I think this year proved, at least to me, is that the Republican Party's current constituency is not going to let that happen without a fight. That what Donald Trump really did was he picked a couple of policies like a wall, like a Muslim ban, and used that to show that he would represent the current Republican Party's base where the other members of the Republican Party political elite would not. And I think that if you project that forward, it suggests a much harder road for the GOP than than one might expect, because to the extent that at some point they are going to look up and say, oh, we can't win presidential elections in particular with this coalition, they are going to find that their current voters are not just going to smoothly let them pivot to go and find that median voter again. No, I think that's right. Look, there are definitely elements of that that are, that are unquestionably correct. That one of the big lessons of this election season for Republicans was that their coalition simply would not, or at least enough of their coalition, uh, we should come back to that, would not let them do the things that would be required to build a more diverse, long-term kind of Republican electorate. Now, it is worth noting that in almost every state, only a minority of Republican voters in the exit polls during the primary supported deportation, as opposed to some kind of legal status for the undocumented. The difference was that Trump just generated overwhelming margins among that minority to the point where they provided most of his votes 
in almost every state, even though they were less than half of the total voters. You know, look at look at the exit poll here. You know, only a minority supported deportation again. But Trump won them so overwhelmingly that it was he was able to overcome his deficit among the majority who supported legal status. The wrinkle here is that Trump won. I mean, he showed that you know Trump did represent a pivot away from Romney and traditional Republicanism. You know, he wasn't the more inclusive Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio approach, but he wasn't just the Romney approach either. I mean, he really doubled down on kind of appealing to both the anxieties and the prejudices of non-urban and non-college white America. And he was able to make that into a a solid electoral college victory, even if he loses the popular vote again, possibly by more than anyone who's won ever. So, you know, the it's going to get even harder to argue for going in the other direction because he can say this won. I mean, this worked. This strategy has always been better in Congress because of the Democratic problem of having their vote overly concentrated in urban areas. As I said, I mean, Hillary Clinton, she's certainly going to win less than 500 counties. And even Obama won about 700, okay, which was the fewest ever for someone elected president. And she's going to win I'm guessing south of 500 counties by the time they're all counted. So you have a Democratic coalition that is that is concentrating more and more, gaining more and more advantage out of the biggest places. And that's all real. And that's where the population is. And that's a strength. But this election showed that you can't let the bottom fall out of everything else. You don't necessarily have to win it, but you can't lose it by as much as she did. Again, particularly in this weakest link in their electoral college map of Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, not to mention Ohio and Iowa. Well, this presents the possibility of the Democratic coalition, among other things, even as it potentially grows larger, is getting a lot less efficient, geographically efficient. I think Donald Trump is either the fourth or fifth president ever elected without a a popular vote, plurality or majority. And two of those four or five have been in the last five elections uh, since George W. Bush. So do do you think it's possible right now that the Electoral College is breaking into a place where it is going to, in a systematic way, be routinely giving a victory to the non-popular vote winner as the Democratic majority both clusters in these fewer and fewer, fewer counties and as uh, it, it grows larger and larger? I don't think it's going to routinely happen, but it's not a coincidence that it happened twice and Republicans benefited both times because the Electoral College, you know, overstates the influence or exaggerates the influence of small, white, rural states where now that we have this intense, overlapping, generational, racial, cultural, geographic fault line in our politics where you essentially have diverse and white collar, but not quite enough urban America against non-diverse, non-urban, blue-collar, evangelical America, the Electoral College is a little thumb on the scale for the Republicans. Although, again, in this, in this case, it essentially was breaching the blue wall at the weakest point where Trump consolidated the kind of forces that are most uneasy with contemporary America and the forces that are most welcoming of what we are becoming simply didn't quite turn out and, and mobilize quite enough to offset that. So right now, the heat on the left is as the argument happens about the aftermath of this election and what Democrats did wrong, you know, the big one and, and the most obvious one is a lot of folks are saying, well, look, clearly Democrats should have elected Bernie Sanders, who was exciting to millennials and possibly could have beaten this turnout and also appealed potentially more to the white working class. How do you handicap that retrospective? 
I don't have a good answer yet in my head about whether Sanders would have done better. I think that it's entirely possible that he would have done better. Now, he would have faced more ideological opposition, I think, from suburban whites, particularly men. I think that it would have been easy for Republicans to really run up the score among college white men by highlighting the overall cost of the Sanders agenda, which was north of a trillion dollars, all paid for, you know, admirably, he found ways to pay for it. But that meant you were raising taxes by a lot. And those are very tax sensitive voters. Uh, And I think it would have been hard for him to do better among the college white women for the same reason. They're less tax sensitive than the men. They're more focused on social issues, but they're not immune to that. On the other hand, Could a Sanders who seemed more authentic as a critic of the forces in the economy that have marginalized working class communities, could he have held down the Trump margins there? And could he have in particular inspired more millennials? I know that the the research by Circle said what only half of millennials voted again, which again was not meeting the moment. Millennials, you can't really blame any one group for this, but you, you can say that at a moment when all of the older non-urban forces that thought America was better 50 years ago gave every last ounce to electing Donald Trump, you can't say millennials who generally believe that what America, you know, generally celebrate what America is becoming, you can't say the same about them. I mean, they did not give every last ounce to preventing Donald Trump from being elected. So would Bernie have done more of that? Yeah, possibly. And so it's an interesting kind of counterfactual, you know, along there with the Comeys and many other things that we'll be questioning uh, for many, many months. One of the things that I was thinking about going into this election was your great book from a number of years ago now on polarization and how America is getting more and more polarized. And I think it was in part, you know, some of the lessons I took from that book that made me think that Trump would generate a lot of turnout among Democrats. Mm-hmm. And also it's a lesson to that book, I think, that it helped explain why Trump was able to hold so much of the Republican Party despite the dissension, particularly within elite ranks, that there's just this tremendous right. hydraulic force right. to get the party to unite around whoever its nominee is. But going forward, it really feels like one of the lessons of this election, one of the lessons of the broad dynamics of polarization in our politics right now is that Compared to, you know, 20, 30 years ago when the parties were looking for a candidate who could convince the median voter to vote for them, right? The voter, you know, conceptually in the middle. It now seems that they really need to be looking for people who are going to excite their base the most. Well, uh, yeah, I think, think, you know, that is the direction we have been heading. Obviously, Karl Rove in 2004, as we've talked about, Karl Rove and Matthew Dowd, who's now very much in the other camp – you know, decided that it was more cost efficient to focus on turning out people who agreed with you and did not vote than it was to try to persuade people who uh, were in the middle and and uh, kind of went back and forth. And so they they shifted resources in a variety of ways from advertising and mobilization toward mobilization away from persuasion, both advertising and field. David Plouffe, as I like to say, was a Rovian. He also largely had that view. They were more focused on turning out this new Obama coalition. Obama lost independence by more in 2012, by more than any Democrat ever who won and yet still won rather comfortably. I think Clinton was mostly in that camp as well. Trump isn't exactly that, though, right? I mean, because Trump Trump was not really about focusing on the maximizing the vote among conventional Republicans. He took a lot of risks there by saying he didn't want to cut Social Security and Medicare and didn't support trade agreements and questioning NATO. He really did have kind of more of a median voter strategy in his own way, a white voter, white blue collar voter. And he did persuade. I mean, it was not the best evidence. And, you know, we're going to have to 
look further, but there was not a turnout surge. It was like kind of a margins shift. If you think of what happened in Scranton and what happened in Western Wayne County and what happened in Northern Wisconsin and Northern Michigan, he didn't flood the polls with a lot of new voters, based at least on the macro overall voter turnout levels. He got voters to switch who voted presumably for Obama four years ago and responded to the argument that he was that he was making and obviously brought out some new people. But I don't I'm not sure we're going to look at the end and say that was the heart of it. How do we know which voter switch? I've been looking a little bit at the evidence on that, and it has been very hard for me to be able to tell whether we're looking at different voters or switching voters. Yeah, we don't know. I and mean, the answer is we don't know. And and you never really know, Because that, I right? think, speaks to something about, about yeah. that question of what Trump was, because I think an alternative read of Trump, and, and this has been true throughout the primary, and I've heard Republican elites say this, is that Republican elites had fooled themselves about what the Republican Party really yes. was, that yes. they thought it was a small government, libertarian-ish, traditionally conservative party, and that there has always been this other strain, which is a little bit more white nationalist, a little bit more populist, uh, more socially traditional. And that Trump understood that that's what the party really was. And, and that in that way, by actually breaking free of the strictures that Republican elites traditionally put on their own politicians to kind of go in this more sort of donor class direction, Trump was able to to, to really excite a, a part of the base that had been disaffected for some time. Yep. No, I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I mean, look, there's no question Trump showed that a big portion of the Republican base simply was not on board with the priorities of its leaders uh, on trade, on entitlements, on infrastructure. Trump, in some ways to me, was almost an independent candidate who ran under the Republican banner. Half of his agenda fits conventional Republicanism, roll back regulation, roll back Dodd-Frank, repeal Obamacare, cut taxes for people at the top, all of the above. Everyone, business roundtable is going to like that. The chamber is going to like that. Paul Ryan is going to like that. Mitch McConnell is going to like that. Walking away from NAFTA, 35% tax on companies that offshore jobs and then re-import the products, uh, massively accelerating deportation, limiting legal immigration, including H-1B, doubling, what did he say? Double, spent twice as much on infrastructure as Hillary Clinton. This is where, again, he was a persuasion candidate, kind of a hybrid candidate. And we will see how committed he was to the aspects of the agenda that made him, I think, so powerful in white working class America. I think they were much more important than the parts of his agenda that overlap with conventional Republican thinking. What do you think his voters want from him now? So he is going to be president. He is going into the presidency, both himself and in his immediate circle. He's now named Steve Bannon, chief strategist and Reince Priebus to be his chief of staff with a bunch of people with no real governing experience. Yeah. I think there's a real question uh, that both the Republicans in the House and Republicans in the Senate are going to try to railroad him into their traditional agenda. Paul Ryan right. would very yes. much like him to right. pass the Ryan budget and does not want him to do tariffs. Right. So what what do you think are the dangers and the opportunities for Trump? Well, I think the core of his coalition wants their economic and cultural prominence or primacy restored. And I think that is two elements. I mean, I think they want him to bring back economic opportunities to all of these small manufacturing towns, you know, where Foreman said these jobs are going, boys, and they ain't coming back. And that is going to be an enormous challenge for him. I mean, is there any set of policy levers that can truly restore those places to what people remember over the course of their lifetime or anything like it. Even if you walk away from trade agreements, 
not clear. You may have a better sense than I, and certainly on your site, write about it a lot. How relevant will any of that be to the economic distress these voters face? I think the other side is they want him to move against the forces in society that they view as eclipsing them or cutting in line ahead of them. And I think on that front, the appointment of Stephen Bannon you know, draws pretty sharp lines. I mean, I think it suggests that he is going to deport a lot of people and that he is going to limit immigration from big chunks of the world if he can, and that he is going to look for legislation to reduce levels of legal immigration. I mean, one of the proposals that got the least attention from Donald Trump was his call for massively reducing legal immigration by tying it to the historic share of the population that is foreign born, which was part of his Arizona speech after going to Mexico, which certainly seems like a Steve Bannon special of, you know, basically saying that the share of the country that is foreign born should be reduced, rolled back to historic levels and kept there, which would mean millions of fewer legal immigrants in the decades ahead. So how far he goes on all of that? Does he fight Paul Ryan to oppose changes in Medicare and Social Security? You know, Ryan has said, including in a session that I did with him, that regardless of who's president, he's going ahead with premium support or vouchers. That is something that is very much out of tune with what Donald Trump sold to older working class white America. So buckle up. But I I think what his voters above all want is, yes, there's a piece of it, those college white men around the penumbra of the coalition who do want the conventional Republican agenda, many of them. But the heart of this in blue collar and non-urban white America, they want what they see as a steady decline in their quality of life reversed. And that has both economic and cultural dimensions. One of my observations from from having covered a couple of presidential elections before this is that coalitions never look as good as they do on the night that they win. I remember Bush in 04 when they won the House and the Senate uh, in addition to the presidency. I remember Obama in 08. And those were pretty skilled politicians with pretty skilled staffs that were coming in on at least relatively, I think, more realistic promise sets. And it, it does seem to me that the Trump administration is starting from a place of very, very, I mean, lower popularity than any president coming in since the advent of polling, that they lost seats in the House and the Senate, even though the Republicans still have a majority. Ooh. They have a very, very activated opposition and they have a fair number of members in their own party who distrust them. And And I think this is, I think people are going to be surprised at how hard this is. I think this is going to be a very rocky couple of years as they get their footing in the White House. Well, it'll be interesting to see, right? Because I mean, the the analogy, I I was talking to a, uh, I've talked to a number of people in kind of democratic orbits, big city mayor, party strategists. And there are, you know, there are two points of view here. I mean, one, I think it totally diverges. The side that says it could be tough for Trump is just think about what Jimmy Carter inherited in 1977. Bigger majorities in the House and the Senate, an outsider with a kind of an agenda that overlapped at some points and rejected in others the party. And it was it was pretty much an unmitigated disaster for four years. I got there at the very end of it. That was when I first arrived in Washington. And there really wasn't a lot of positive moments in it. My guess is this story is going to be more diverse here or more divergent. I think on the parts where Trump overlaps with the Republican agenda, it is going to be a really tough fight for Democrats. I think that, for example, you know, block granting Medicaid, which Bill Clinton vetoed twice, repealing major elements of Obamacare or at least making it unworkable, replacing the insurance in Obamacare at the least with essentially catastrophic plans, rolling back the Medicaid expansion, rolling back big portions of Dodd-Frank, big tax cut, undoing the clean power plan, 
symbolically, if nothing else, walking out of the Paris Agreement. I think there is going to be a lot of stuff that they are able to do that is just horrifying to Democrats and conversely might have the effect of mobilizing some of the constituencies that were more. Can he do nationwide concealed carry, which he's talked about? I mean, can they pass that? Probably not. I mean, you can't do that through reconciliation and you probably don't have 60 votes for it. But I think there are going to be a lot of challenges on a lot of fronts. I mean, this is going to be enormous pressure in a lot of areas. The bigger question, as I said, is what happens to the parts that are uniquely Trump? What happens on walking away from global trade, massively accelerating deportation, barring Muslim immigration, big infrastructure spending? Ironically, in some of these areas, they might have more Democratic support, right? But it's not clear whether they can get a Republican Congress to go along with them. Yeah, in my head, the way I've kind of mapped this out, and I agree with everything you just said, is that there's sort of a Venn diagram. And anything that is in the center of Trump and Ryan is not going to be hard to do at all. There are some things that are going to get hit by the filibuster. But but for the most part, a lot of what the Republican Party wants to do actually can be done through reconciliation because it's so budget focused. And so I think there are going to be a couple places and one of them might be Obamacare, where at some point somebody's going to sit down with Trump and say, if you do this, this many people lose insurance. Here's where they are. You need a solution for that. So I think it'll be a little bit tricky, but I think all of that can clearly get done. And then I think there's a lot of things and immigration is a big one. Trade is a big one where Trump and Ryan and Mc- Ryan and McConnell, for that matter, are on opposite sides. And I think the, the big question about the Trump administration, the one I don't know, is does the agenda end up getting derailed by the places they don't agree or just focused on the places they do agree? Uh, it's a, it's an, I don't know the answer, right? I, I really yeah. don't know because I think, you know, in Carter, ultimately the places they disagreed overwhelmed the places they agreed. The, the last time you could, you could see a president whose so much of whose agenda really didn't overlap with what his, and this is probably even more than Carter, with what his party wanted to do And I don't know. I mean, I think they will get a lot done and there will be a sense of progress for the core Republican constituencies. Maybe not. Unraveling Obamacare is much more complicated than they, when Donald Trump goes on TV and says, well, I want to keep pre-existing conditions, but I want to get rid of everything else. Well, good luck with that. Um, You know, I mean, as you know, better than, better than anybody. So uh, I think parts of it may be more complicated. I think they're going to roll back a lot of regulations and cut a lot of taxes. Yeah, Um, I agree with that. All right. uh, I know you've got to run. So let me end on the the question we normally do, which is a couple of book recommendations. What books would you tell people to read to understand this moment in politics? Well, I look, I mean, I think, you know, there has been a a lot of good writing lately about kind of the alienation of white working class America. Hillbilly Elegy is an an obvious one that, you know, kind of comes to mind. And I think that's that's important. But I think also, I mean, you you know, we've got to kind of look at this from the other side. I mean, you know, the the other question is, is what I've called the coalition of transformation ready to step up to the challenge of governing the country? And, And I think in this election, they slightly wavered. It slightly wavered. It did not fully meet the test of just an incredibly energized, you know, what I call coalition of restoration that was very determined to regain control of the steering wheel. You know, as I like to say, the people who say the country was better in 1950 are now kind of defining the path toward 2050. And that is a real challenge. So, I mean, you know, books that kind of look at uh, what I'm trying to think of like the best ones, but, you know, kind of what the challenges are of creating a country that fully engages and energizes these new voices, because that is, 
I think, as much of the solution for Democrats as it is regaining the ground they have lost. What, one last point, Ezra. I, you know, I'm kind of struck that the people who were least surprised by this were many of the African-American strategists and commentators like a Cornell Belcher, because they simply believe that more of white America would respond or at least accept a racially tinged message than I probably did. I thought that more of white collar America, this would have been disqualifying, not necessarily in blue collar white America, but in white collar white America. And so, you know, kind of thinking about that, about, you know, what what is, as you said, what is the floor here in terms of discourse is going to be a real challenge going forward. Ron Brownstein, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Ron Brownstein. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production. Thank you to my producer, AC Valdez, and to all of you who were here this week, as you are so many weeks, to listen to it. We'll be back. 